Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. I don't know if you were on Facebook this week, you may not have known, but it snowed. Uh, and I say that because I always love the first Sunday after it snows because uh, people seem to be in one of two places. Either you know, it snows and they just go straight into like Buddy the Elf Christmas mode and they just cannot wait. This is the, the moment they've been waiting for all year. Or people go into this like, deep period of mourning and, and sorrow and sadness as they're looking ahead at the impending winter. And so I like this morning because you're all a little fragile in one way or the other, and I think that's a, a good opportunity for us to be together. And if you're new to Central, if you uh, just don't know who I am, my name is Tyler here at Central. I serve as the pastor to senior high students and families, and, and it's good to be with you. As you can see, we're in this series right now called Itty Bitty. And in this series, we're looking at the life of David, and really, we're taking these different words that end with I-T-Y or I-T-T-Y, and we're looking at the life of David and asking how this man who lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, how his life, how his successes and his failures, his experiences, how they can still teach us something today. And so I'm excited to be with you. And I want to say, before I go any further, I don't know kind of what you bring to the table this morning. I don't know where all of you are. I, don't, I know some of your stories, but I don't know all of your stories. And so I don't know when you come into this place and we gather this morning where you find yourself on this journey of faith. Maybe for some of you, church, but even central, has been a part of your life since before you were born. And, and this is home, and this is family, and this is something that you love, and, and you find value and meaning and life in. Maybe for others of you, you come this morning, and you're really not sure why you're here. Faith and church and Christians are, couldn't be further from a priority in your life. And, and maybe you're here, I started seeing pictures this week of, of families getting together for early Thanksgiving celebrations. Yesterday, in fact, uh, we had our annual Thanksgiving day with the young adults. Pastor John leads that, and it's always a fun day of games and food and laughing and conversation. And so maybe you're in town this week because your family was celebrating Thanksgiving early, and when you come to town, whether you like it or not, you show up here on Sunday morning because that's what happens when you come to town. But I say that Because as we get into this this morning, as we begin to talk about what we're going to talk about and think about some things, I think no matter where you find yourself today, what we're going to think about, it's not uniquely a a Christian thing or a Christian problem, though we as Christians are definitely not exempt from that. But what we're thinking about today is really a human problem, a human condition. And and so I want to invite you uh, to kind of come along and follow along in in the things that we're going to talk about this morning. And and I'll be honest, I'm not going to try to trick you. I think that our faith offers a better way forward with what we're going to talk about today. But wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you come to this place this morning, I want to invite you to journey with us. And as we get into things this morning, I want to start by talking about a, a book that It's a classic. I I, I would imagine several of you have read it. It was written in 1851. The book is is Moby Dick. And it's this story, this book, which is actually written by a sailor or from the perspective of a sailor named Ishmael. And he writes this story uh, of, the story is really of this captain, Captain Ahab, and this whale. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, 
uh, at the beginning, or, or, or the story starts with Ahab having this encounter with this whale, uh, where the whale bites off one of his legs up to his knee. And, and so Captain Ahab is, is overcome with this obsession and this, and this fixation on he's got to find this whale, and he's got to seek revenge on this whale. And, and this pursuit, this journey for Ahab drives him really to madness. And I'm going to ruin the book, but if you haven't read it, you had 150 years. Uh, but at the end, it drives him ultimately to his death. But why this book is so renowned and why people love this is because the author, Herman Melville, is credited with using the literary device of imagery so well in this book. I, I doubt for most of us, I don't, again, I don't know all of your stories, I just said that, but I doubt for most of you, you've had this encounter with a whale uh, where this whale wronged you or disrespected you or gave you this, this look, and so now you're on this journey to find this vendetta against this whale. But for all of us, we can identify something in our life that has become an obsession, something that consumes us and captivates us and, and, and drives us. But one of the things that I love about this book is that we see in Captain Ahab this deep-seated fear that on some level, he has this fear, whether it be of public image or perception. He has this fear that drives him of what will people remember me by if I don't find this whale, if I don't do this thing. And if we look at the story, a lot of what he does seems to stem from this fear which motivates him to action. And fear is an interesting thing. I've talked about fear before when I've preached, but I think that fear is so active and so prevalent in our lives that it's something that we want to constantly keep before us. I read an article this week from a psychology journal that talked about the way that fear is used in marketing. And really that, that most of marketing at some level is trying to, to use fear uh, as motivation for action. And so what marketers will do is they'll paint this picture, they'll, they'll, they'll draw this scenario that on some level, and, and they won't say it's fear, and we probably wouldn't say that's fear, but on some level it, it upsets our equilibrium and it makes us start to feel this tension, this fear of missing out, or this fear of, of not being like everybody else, this fear of being behind, or this fear for safety. And so they present this situation, they, they create this, this moment that creates fear, and then they offer this product or service as an anecdote or an answer to that fear. And, and this, this tool used by, by, by marketing people uh, is what sells cars and tires and life insurance. But it's also what sells cereal and toothpaste and children's toys. See, see, fear is such an interesting thing. And I think we all deal with fear in different ways. We all respond to fear in different ways. But, but fear is active for all of us. Fear of not mattering, fear of failing, fear of loss or of change, fear of being insignificant, fear of, of the unknown, the uncertainty of what lies ahead. And whether you're a parent or children, whether you're a grandparent or an elderly person or, or, or someone very new in life, a student, whether it's at work or at home, fear seems to be all around us. 
And we're all struck with the reality of fear and the role that it plays in our lives. But today I don't want to simply look at fear, but I want to look at fear and how fear can motivate us and how fear interacts with our relationships we have with other people and how fear ultimately has us hold on to certain things in life. Most of this series, we've been spending time in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to do that again today. And I have like six verses that I want to read with you. But these verses are really going to serve as a springboard or a snapshot. Because I want to do two things with this text after we read it. So we're going to read it very briefly. And then I want to do two things with it. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to start at verse 7. And then we're going to read a couple of verses and then jump ahead. I think it's going to be on the screen starting at verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. And he said, this is Saul who is pursuing David, who is trying to to find David uh, to kill him. So Saul says, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Note to self, don't enter towns with gates and bars. Not Not a good thing. And so it says, Saul called up all of his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Jumping ahead to verse 25, Saul and his men began to search. And when David was told about this, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. So in this moment, it seems like a a pretty dramatic scene, a pretty dramatic moment. If we read in between there, it's just kind of more of the same, of David trying to figure out, is he going to get me? Am I safe here? No, I'm going to keep going. And Saul continuing to try to pursue David. And it seems as though they're on opposite sides of the mountain, but they're headed towards this moment where they, were, they will meet. And Saul will have an opportunity to capture David and ultimately kill David until he gets this message and has to pull back and go a different direction. So what's happening here? I said I wanted to do two things with the text. The first thing I want to do is I want to change the elevation. Let me explain what that means. I think for a lot of us, when we read, we tend to take a couple of verses or, or a couple of words and we stretch them out. We look at them very intently and, and we begin to look at the word and the original language and, and how over time it came to the English that we read it in today and figure out what was lost on that or what was changed or what may be misinterpreted. We look at the context and then we try to ask what was happening in those times. And, and don't get me wrong, that's typically how I would do this as well. I think there's a lot of value in doing that. It's kind of like when you're playing in the dirt and you're, you're taking every rock and turning it over and examining every little thing so you don't miss something. And so you're getting down in the dirt and you're getting dirty and you're looking under every nook and cranny. And so what I mean when I say I want to change the elevation is if that's like playing in the dirt, doing that with a text, I want to pretend that we're flying over this place in a helicopter or airplane. And I want to change the elevation that we look at the story because sometimes when we do that, we see this totality of a story, the wholeness of the story that gives us a different way of seeing what is happening here. 
Maybe we can see the story in a more complete way when we're up above, when we change the elevation, than when we're down in the dirt. So I want to change the elevation, and I want to turn the tables of the story. Uh, people who study people and, and, and the brain and the mind have these terms of the hero complex or the savior complex. And what that means is, is typically when we read a story, when we watch a movie, when we, when we are, 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 are engaging in some sort of narrative, we have this innate tendency, this, this, this habit of identifying with the hero, of identifying with the good guy, of identifying with, with, with whoever comes out on top. I mean, think about when you watch a movie. You typically are rooting for the good guy. You're, you're seeing yourself in that. And, and again, don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of value in doing that because there's a lot we can learn from the good guy. But when I say I want to turn the table, I want to look at the bad guy. And I want to ask ourselves, how do we see ourselves in that? What can we learn from this? So I want to change the elevation and I want to turn the tables. And in order to change the elevation, I think we need to see the story more fully. And this is a story, yes, about Saul and David, but really, this story is a story about Israel. And if you remember, Israel was released from captivity in Egypt. And they went into the wilderness, and then they they had this moment at Mount Sinai with God, where they made a covenant with God, and they entered into the promised land, this land they had been hoping for. If we back up in our Bibles a little bit from 1 Samuel, the book before that is Judges. And the book of Judges shows us how Israel failed at keeping that covenant with God. And the book of Judges shows us Israel's need for a wise and moral leader, someone they can follow after as they try to live this life that God's calling them to. And so we get into 1 and 2 Samuel, which were originally one book split into two books. And in 1 Samuel, we kind of have three main characters. The first one, as you may guess, Samuel who is a prophet, a spokesman for God. The second one is Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And the third main character is David, the shepherd boy who will ultimately be the second king of Israel. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we have all of these interactions between the Israelites and the Philistines, which leads the Israelites to go to Samuel and say, hey, look, we see all of these other nations, and they all have kings, and they seem to be doing all right. So, Samuel, would you ask God if we can have a king? We'd like that as well. And there's a little bit of back and forth, and it's ultimately kind of one of God's, like, oy vey moments. Like, okay, you want a king. This isn't how I planned, but I'm going to give you a king. I want you to be a part of this. So let me give you a king. And so we have King Saul that's raised up, and and the first king of Israel. And if you remember the first or second week of the series, I think Pastor Rob talked about Saul. Because Saul is this man who had all of this promise, all of this potential. If you're reading scripture, it says that he was tall and strong and handsome. But Saul was also arrogant and prideful. And Saul was either unable or unwilling to look at his own faults. And those things began to lead to Saul's demise. And so Samuel comes to Saul He says, look, Israel needs a king who is faithful to God and who is humble. And so God is going to raise up this new king, David. And I know this may be shocking because we've we've figured out how to transition power nowadays. Uh, But Saul didn't like that idea. That was a joke. Thank you for the one person who got the humor in that. 
Saul didn't like hearing that he was going to have to give up his power, that he was going to be put down and someone else was going to be raised up. And David, who actually worked for Saul, he was a general for Saul, he was successful and well-liked, all of this jealousy started to stew for Saul. And it drives him to madness, this jealousy, as he begins to pursue David, right where we read this morning. For a couple chapters, we see Saul pursuing David and David fleeing for his life. There's actually, this isn't the point of the sermon, but there's actually a lot of parallels between Captain Ahab and King Saul. As he's driven to madness in this pursuit of David. Which is where we find ourselves in the text today. David running for his life. Saul bent on on doing anything he can to not give up his throne. Even to the point of being able to kill one of his, his friends. Someone who worked for him and who was successful in David. Why I tell that story and why I look at the story through that lens is because I, I worry that too often Saul's story is our story. Or at least that, that, that parts of Saul's story we can identify with and we can see in ourselves. See, Saul is met with this fear. And again, I don't know what the fear was, if it was the fear of being a has-been or being insignificant, if it was a fear of not mattering or being remembered as a failure. But Saul is met with this fear. And when he experiences that fear, with that fear, he begins to close his fists on what he has. He begins to push back and and clench his fists even harder. He begins to hoard the gifts that have been given to him rather than being able to give it away. And I think in my life, but for all of us, What are some of those gifts? What are some of those things that when fear is active, we begin to hold on to even tighter? What are those things in our lives that we clench in our fists and and the more we're pushed, the harder and the tighter we squeeze? See, because don't get it wrong, Saul being king wasn't a bad thing. In fact, we, we see that God raised Saul to be a king. It wasn't sinful or evil. What went wrong for Saul is when he lost sight of that gifting. And, and rather than, than, than being able to, to pass this on, to hand the baton, rather than seeing that opportunity, Saul began to hoard that gift he had been given rather than being a steward or a shepherd of God's blessing. See, I think about our lives, and there are a lot of things in our lives that aren't bad things. There are a lot of things in our life that can be really good things, but oftentimes when we're met with fear or uncertainty, our initial response can be to hold on more tightly. Whether they're material things or not, we lose sight of the giftedness of things and try to hoard things for ourselves. Power is not a bad thing. But power should be used to empower those around us. Influence is not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. But our influence should be used to raise up and to bring a better way of life for those in our influence. Security, time, wealth. The list could go on and on of things that aren't bad things. 
But if we lose sight of them, and we begin to hoard and clench our fists, we can take what God had given us as a gift, and it can lead to our own demise. If you're visiting us today, you have like a, if you don't know, maybe you're visiting or you're not sure about this whole Christian thing, I'm going to give you a little break. You got like a two-minute nap. Because I'm going to talk to just the people who call Central home. If you were here for spiritual renewal a few weeks ago, Dr. Busick, I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday, he preached this sermon kind of along the lines of this about how we hold on to and clinch to the idea of church. And he began to lay out and, and, and challenge us to practice how we can begin passing the baton to the next generation. How can we leave a legacy and begin to pass that off sooner rather than later to those who come behind and those who follow in the wake of our lives? This is, this is somewhat what we have done as, with this Growing Young assessment. And don't get me wrong, just because it's called Growing Young doesn't mean that if you're older, you're insignificant or that you're, you're kind of done. In fact, just the opposite. We need you more than we've ever needed you before. But this Growing Young assessment is, is about helping us define our current reality and to learn more about our, our church's current culture as we try to discern the best path Forward. And so if you haven't taken the assessment, and I know a lot of you haven't taken the assessment yet because I've seen how many of you have taken it, take 10 minutes. If this is your first Sunday, if you've been coming here for 80 years, please take 10 minutes out of your day. There, there's information in the bulletin. There's stuff out in the foyer. If you go to the church website, there's a link to it. Give us 10 minutes of your time so we can listen and we can understand. As we begin to pass this off, we want to do that well. See, when I look at this, this book of 1 Samuel, I don't know that I see 1 Samuel giving us a better way forward. I don't know if in, in this book I, I see a discernible path forward. I think that 1 Samuel serves as more of a story of warning or caution for what happens when we, we let pride and selfishness and, 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 and tight-fistedness run rampant in our lives. But as I think ahead in scripture, I think to a man named Jesus, who came into this world with with, with full openness and humility, and taking that posture, that began to permeate into every interaction, every experience, and every relationship that Jesus was a part of. In Christ, we see someone who is constantly moving deeper and deeper into relationship with those around him. And I wonder for Saul, what would have happened if when faced with this fear, he had chosen to move into deeper relationship with David? How would that have changed his posture towards David? How would that have loosened his grip on the things he was holding on to so tightly. See, in Jesus, we see this better way forward. As I think about some of the things that we can hold on to, I think about some of the, the things in our lives that, that we struggle to let go of. One of the first things that comes to mind is the idea of time. 
I mean, we, we live in maybe the busiest time in all of the world. And time seems to be such a precious thing. And when I think of people who are, who are just overwhelmed and consumed with, with busyness, it's hard for me not to think of our teachers. It seems like it's harder and harder every single day to be a teacher nowadays. And the asks get greater and greater, and, 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 and things, things just get piled on. And it was three or four years ago, it was actually before Pastor Joey came, we had a, a vacancy in the junior high area, and we needed someone to step in. And so Pastor Rob actually asked a, a group of three ladies. One of those ladies is Julie Tuttle, who's a kindergarten teacher. I don't think she usually sits up there, but I think she's in second service. She's a kindergarten teacher, and I, I went to her classroom two years ago around Christmas to read with some of the kids, and I was there for about an hour and a half, and I felt like I needed a sabbatical. But Julie had every right to have an excuse for her time. If there was someone who was busy and didn't have time to give, who could have held on to her schedule, it was Julie. But Julie modeled for me what this open-handedness looks like. I don't even know if that's a word. But she modeled that posture of openness and humility as she said yes to stepping into that junior high area. And she had no idea how long that would be, what that would look like. She just said yes. And now we're looking three or four years down the road. Pastor Joey's here. But Julie has maintained those relationships she started. She's now with our 10th grade girls. And if you pulled our 10th grade girls, but even any of our students from senior high and asked them about someone who has made a difference in their life, someone who through relationship has demonstrated them this openness and this humility, they would point to Julie and talk about the difference she made in their lives simply because she decided to live like this. See, we're constantly met with different stories that we can live into in this world. There's a way of life, and then we see another way of life. The way of life that's modeled through Christ. That rather than clenching our fists, we begin to open up to all that God may have for us. As I close in prayer, I'm going to invite you, if you would like, to join me in prayer with your hands open as a reminder for us of the life that God invites us to live. God, would you teach us how to live a life with our hands wide open? God, would you, would you show us a way forward that is constantly leading us into deeper and deeper relationship with those around us. We thank you, Lord, for this moment. We thank you for this time. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.